0: We are now in Revelation uh, chapter 3, the very end, the final message that Jesus gives to the seventh church here at Laodicea. And if you're familiar with the message to the church of Laodicea, then you could probably understand why I originally titled my message, The Church of the Bellyache." Laodicea may be the last church Jesus sends a message to, but it's one of only two churches that Jesus has nothing good to say. No no praise, no commendation. You know, the letters or the messages that he gives, they normally start off by, you know, he'll uh, greet them, remind them, you know, uh, of aspects of his character. Then he'll commend them if there are things to commend. He'll correct them if there are things to correct. And then he will give them a promise. Well, Laodicea, there was no commendation, you know, In fact, Jesus' rebuke for them is one of the heaviest we find in Scripture uh, for the Lord toward his people. So you might be thinking, why would I change my title then? Well, while the Laodicean spiritual pride did indeed turn Jesus' stomach, that is not the image that Jesus leaves them with. As we look at the entire message, may its rebuke convict us, but may its beautiful promise give us hope for the future. So, Chapter three, beginning in verse 14. And under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth heavy. And yet before we get into the heaviness, we should probably give a little bit of background of why Jesus might be talking to them this way. If we could put the map up there, we'll look at the last little circle down there to my left, your right, of Laodicea there. Laodicea was 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 40 miles east of Ephesus. Laodicea was very well known in the ancient world for its wealth. In fact, it was so wealthy that when the great earthquake of 60 AD completely destroyed the city, they rebuilt it without any financial aid from Rome. Now, their wealth was gained because they had a very successful banking industry in the city, as well as a very successful black wool textile industry. And because of their wealth and their success, it was a distinguished city among all of the all of Greek society. It had was known for its sciences, it was known for its literature, it had a very um well known medical school that had concocted this spice nard that was famous for both uh treating the eyes and the ears. Um, In addition to this, Laodicea also had a very large Jewish population because Antiochus the Great transported about 2,000 Jewish families there from Babylon uh, about 200 years before this letter is written. If you wanted to point out any disadvantages or any problems a city might have had, you could only really point to its water supply. It had no nearby water supply. Back then in ancient days, um, you know, you built cities right near bodies of water because they didn't have the same type of piping systems that we have today. And so you didn't want to have to try to get water to travel very far. So uh, Laodicea has not built nearby any water supplies. Uh, They brought water into the city from a source six miles to the north via system stone pipes, yet another uh, sign of their wealth. But because of the distance that this water had to travel, it was always tepid when it got to them, lukewarm. Now, one other thing we do need to point out before we move on to Jesus' description of himself. This is the only church of the seven that Jesus defines by its members rather than by its location. Every other church, it will say, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, to the pastor or leaders of the church in Pergamos, to the leaders of the church in Philadelphia. But this one he says, unto the leader of the church, not in Laodicea, but of the Laodiceans. That is significant. Because the church of Laodicea was a church that emphasized its people instead of its Savior. And so Jesus, right away, reminds them of who he is. These things says the amen. Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. When Jesus says that he is the amen, we know that phrase amen is a declaration. It is a affirmation, a statement of affirmation. It's when you say amen, you're saying it is truth. For example, if you come here to church on a regular basis, every once in a while when I actually get something right, someone will go "Amen." amen. You finally got something right, Pastor Will. You know, it's a statement going, that's the truth. That's correct, you know? So what is Jesus saying when he's saying, I am the statement of correct, you know, this is correct, this is truth? Well, it's interesting, uh, in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, it calls the Lord the God of truth, but the Greek translation of Isaiah 65, 16 calls him the God of the amen. When Jesus calls himself the amen, not a amen, not you can give lots of amens, but when he calls himself the amen, it is a statement of deity. He is saying, I am the God of the amen, the God of truth. Jesus said something very similar in John 14, 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And in there, Jesus even makes the statement more exclusive. He doesn't just say, I'm the amen. You know, I'm the truth, I'm the only truth. I am the, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive statement of deity. So when he says, I am the amen, he reminds them, I am the God of truth. I I I am the statement of truth. He also says, I am the faithful and true witness. These things says the faithful and true witness. Faithful means trustworthy, dependable, reliable. True means genuine, real You know, there are a lot of things out there that are vying for your trust, claiming to be what's real or claiming to be one of many paths to truth. Jesus is the one thing and the one person I can always trust in because he's the truth. And he is the reliable source of truth. He is real. There are so many things that have swept through the church, have swept through the culture I've grown up in, that have tried to sway and move believers. And every time as I've looked at Jesus, I found my feet on very solid ground, and all those things have passed away. And they will continue to do so. Because he is the faithful and true witness. You know, he is the faithful and reliable, the dependable thing that you can always bank on. I don't have to look anywhere else to figure out what's going on. I can look to my Savior, and I'm good. my wife always says, well, the Lord's not gonna punish you because you weren't educated on every little topic that man could know and understand. What the Lord is going to hold you accountable for is what he said. There are lots of things that... Are vying for your attention right now. Jesus is worthy of it. He's dependable. He's true. He's real. He also says these things, says the beginning of the creation of God. Now, some people like to use this to say, well, Jesus, that shows He's a created being. He's the beginning of God's creation. No, 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 no. The word beginning here, it means the origin, the first cause. Jesus is not a created being. John 1, 3 says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made, right? I believe it's in Colossians where it says that when we say that all things, you know, are are made by him, it means that he's excluded from those things that are made. I mean, it's not confusing in scripture. Jesus is not a created being. He is the eternal God who created everything. He's the origin of all creation, the first cause of all creation, Everything that Jesus says here, that He's the Amen, the God of truth, that He's the faithful and true witness, that He is the origin of creation, they are all reminders of His deity. Now, why did the Christians at Laodicea need to be reminded that Jesus is God, that He's the source of truth, that He's the source of life? Why did they need to be reminded of that? Because they had become satisfied with a cheap substitute for those things. He says to them in verses 15 and 16, I know your works. And this is normally when a commendation would come, but there's no commendation here. It was, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Jesus commends nothing in this church. He goes right to the correction. I would that you were cold or hot. The phrase means, how I wish that you were either cold or hot. What does Jesus mean, I wish you were cold or hot? The word there, cold, it means chilled. The word cold is used numerous times in the New Testament, but this particular word for cold is only used twice. The only other, well, two two sections of scripture It's used a couple times here. The only other section of scripture it's used in is in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. You don't need to turn there. I'm gonna read it to you. It's that beautiful promise for all of our children's ministry teachers. Matthew 10, 42, and whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water, only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Every time you just give a cup of cold water and make a little guy smile and you do it in my name, there's a reward in heaven for that. There's a reward in heaven for that. That's what this word chilled speaks of. It speaks of being refreshing, of being a blessing. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, the word hot here is also exclusive. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's never used in the New Testament anywhere else. It means to be boiling hot. So I wish that you were either cold, chilled, refreshing, or boiling hot. And why do I bring this up? Because some have sought to interpret this text here metaphorically with cold meaning that you're spiritually lethargic or spiritually apathetic. And then hot means you're on fire for Jesus. Well, the first problem with that view is that Jesus would never want any person to be spiritually apathetic or lethargic. I can never picture my Savior up in heaven going, "Man, you drive me nuts. I, I, I just wish you know. I wish you were just full-on hellion, you know? What? How, that doesn't make any sense." Jesus doesn't wish for that. You know, 2 Peter chapter three, says, 3, verse 9 says that he is not willing that any should perish. That word willing can be translated the same way, way how I would, how I wish. I do not wish that anyone would perish, but that all come to repentance. Listen, Jesus isn't schizophrenic. He doesn't have contradicting wishes. He doesn't wake up one morning and go, I don't want anyone to perish, and then the next morning going, I wish they just were cold, man. What he wants never changes because he's not like us. So that's a problem with that viewpoint. The second problem with that viewpoint is it's not supported anywhere by the language. We cannot presume because hot means good and cool means bad or cold means bad in our culture, in our day, in our language, that, that, that it means the same thing in other cultures, languages, and time periods. That's a wrong way to approach studying your Bible to put idioms of our day, you know, he's on fire for Jesus. So that means that that's how, I guarantee you, no one in the New Testament church looked over at a Christian and go, he's on fire for Jesus. That just was, that's something that's an us phrase. Both Jesus's wishes consistently through scripture and the language of that day support the idea that Jesus was talking about something the Laodiceans would easily understand, their water system he says, so then, because you are lukewarm. You're not refreshing, and you're not, you ever, you ever take a nice, you go into like a hot tub? It's therapeutic, you know? I mean, don't stay in there too long, but, you know, it, it's nice. You know, he says, you're neither refreshing nor therapeutic. You know, you are lukewarm, tepid, you know, if, if I'm out mowing the lawn, all right, and, and my wife, she's so awesome, she sees me out there, I don't mow the lawn anymore. I'm, I'm, I have children that do that. It's wonderful, you know, we have six. That means, we, you know, when we get old and, you know, we can't take care of ourselves anymore, we just stay with one of them for two months at a time, you know? <laughs> children are a blessing. But when I, I used to mow the lawn a lot, you know, She would come out all the time and be like, hey, you need a drink? She never brought me a drink of hot water when I was out in the Florida heat mowing the lawn. She brought me a drink of cool water, lots of ice because that's refreshing. The hot water would have been, I would have vomited. You know, on the same token, on a day when it's chilly out here, you know, like when we do our Christmas caroling, you know, we don't don't have iced tea as not our main dish, our main drink. You know, we've got hot cocoa and things like that. Why? Because it's, in that moment, it's therapeutic. You know, you've been cold, it warms you up. Both of cold and hot can be positive things when it comes to water. But the one thing that's never cool is just tepid, lukewarm. The very word lukewarm makes me want to vomit, you know? I'm so enjoying my lukewarm hamburger. No one said that ever. What makes this more interesting is Laodicea's position. Colossae, the letter to the Colossians was written to them. That was about 10 miles to the west of Laodicea. It was very well known for its pure cold waters, its springs, you know, refreshing. Hierapolis was about six miles to the north, and it was known for its therapeutic hot springs. Laodicea's water system provided none of that, neither the refreshment of cold water nor the healing of hot water to its citizens. And the Christians there had failed in the same way. They would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. And they would understand completely when he said, because you are lukewarm and you're neither refreshing nor healing, he says, I will spew you out of my mouth. The phrase, I will, thankfully, it means not I am doing this, but to be about to do something. I'm ready to do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm ready to do this. To spew means exactly what you think. It means to vomit, to be sick. You know, you're about to be the stuff on the floor that the dogs lick up. That's what you're about to be. That's how much you're turning my stomach right now because you're not refreshing and because you're not therapeutic. You're not healing. Now, it's heavy, but it leaves me with two thoughts. First off, Christians should be refreshing and healing to those around them. Jesus expects that to be the case. We should be refreshing and healing to those around us. We should not be offering the same thing that the world can find elsewhere. If we are, we are turning our Savior's stomach. We are called to be salt and light, something different. And so I ask you this morning, is that your testimony? You know, are you refreshing to those around you right now? You know, are you a healing bomb to those around you right now? You should be. If you're a Christian, you should be. And that's what pleases the Savior. The second thought that I get from this is a more encouraging one. <laughs> and it said Jesus hadn't spit them out yet. <laughs> there was still hope for them. And so if you're convicted right now about not being refreshing or not being healing to those around you, The good news is this, it's not too late to repent. It's not too late to change that. Now, why were they this way? Well, because they had fallen for a cheap substitute to real Christianity. Sadly, something that is greatly in existence today. In verse 17, he explains why they were lukewarm. He says, Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is why they were lukewarm. And because of that, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich, and white raiment that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness does not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Jesus says, I have three products available to you today that will fix your lukewarmness. Now, Let's look at the problem first, the cause of the problem. Why were they lukewarm? Two reasons. He says, first off, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. The phrase there, to be increased with goods, is in the perfect tense. And it means to have arrived at prosperity, to arrived at great heights, to arrive at great value. Part one of the Laodiceans' problem was they thought they were spiritually mature because they were prosperous. And you know What? Paul warned us about that wrong thinking. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter six with me. All first service, I said it was 1 Timothy five, so I have no clue if they understood what I was talking about. Hopefully, I'll do better this time. 1 Timothy six. We'll start in verse five, but stay here because I'm gonna just briefly kind of go through a couple other things in the next few verses. Paul's teaching Timothy about how to be a good pastor. And he says, listen, here's what you need to teach. And if anyone's teaching otherwise, they're they're no good. They're a false teacher. They are not not listening to Jesus. They are not teaching good doctrine. They are proud. They are doing things that displease the Lord. And one of the ways he describes them is in verse 5. He says that they are... They are involved in perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds. It's interesting, it, it, it doesn't mean that they were they were the ones who were of corrupt minds and disputing, but they 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 were engaged in those who made these arguments. They were involving their lives in people who made these perverse arguments, and that's what they did with their lives. They invested their time in those things who were destitute of the truth. Supposing that gain is godliness. Thinking that prosperity and wealth, that that is godliness. It's evidence of godliness. It is the pinnacle of what you can achieve. Timothy says, from such, withdraw yourself. Don't hang out with them. Don't be around them. Don't, don't engage with them. Don't partner with them. That's what he says. Now, something I want to point out. Being wealthy or successful Isn't evil. That's not what Paul's saying, all right? If God gives you favor at your work environment or in your finances and He makes you prosperous or He lets your business be successful or you're successful in other areas of life, that's not evil. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is that seeing those things as evidence or proof of spirituality is wrong thinking. That is wrong thinking. In contrast, he says godliness with contentment, that is true wealth, verse 6. But godliness, in contrast to this idea that gain is godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. So the idea here is, you know, God will, some of you, are probably successful in your business, successful financially, wealthy financially. Some of you, maybe not so. The Bible says that promotion does not come from the east or west, it comes from the Lord. And frankly, he gives it to us not because we deserve it. And if God has made you wealthy, or if he's made you successful, then use it for the glory of God. But, neither the absence of those things nor the presence of those things are signs or guarantees of spirituality. (laughs) They are not evidence of godliness. What is, is true, actual godliness, godly character with contentment, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum. And that is true wealth. Now how do you pursue that then? Well, he explains, for we brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can carry nothing out. So having food and clothing, let us therewith, with those things, be content. Whether God's prospered you and blessed you, don't let that be the source of your contentment. Be content that God takes care of your needs. You've got every reason to be happy if God's taking care of your needs. But they that will be rich, those that want to be rich, they're pursuing it, well, they fall into temptation and a trap, a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Why? Because the love of money is the root of, King James says, all evil, but literally it means all different kinds of evil. If you're going to love money and pursue it, that's going to be where you pursuit and think that's the pinnacle, like the Laodiceans were looking at, then guess what? You have opened up all sorts of pathways, wrong pathways you can go down that will mess you up. And he says, well, which some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So instead, what do you pursue? How do you pursue it? But you, O oh man, recognizing to be content with food and clothing, I, don't, I've, I haven't brought anything into this world, I can't take any of it with me, so what do I pursue? Flee those things, he says, but thou, O oh man of God, flee these things and follow, pursue after righteousness, Godliness. Faithfulness, being a dependable person, love, patience, and meekness, humility. If you're gonna chase after something, chase after those six things. Because in the process of chasing after those six things, you'll end up having godliness with contentment. And that is true wealth. So, that was part one of their problem. They had wrong thinking about true wealth, true, true um, riches the second part of their problem is they didn't realize they were wretched miserable poor blind and naked now there are two words for no in the greek language one refers to experiential or heart knowledge and then the other one refers to head knowledge this word here refers to head knowledge he says you have never known that you're wretched miserable poor blind and naked that's what that word no it's in the perfect tense which means you have never known these things You've never known who you are without me. Now, this shows part two of their problem was a willful ignorance of their need every day for the Lord's help. They were, it's not that they weren't taught it, they were willfully ignorant of their need for the Lord's help every day. And as a result, you know, I mean, uh, they didn't recognize their wretchedness. You know, it's interesting, Paul used this word wretched in Romans chapter seven, verse 24, When he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Why did he say it like that? Why did he call himself a wretched man? Well, the word wretched is a picture word in the Greek language. And it refers to the the, um, punishment that the Romans would place upon someone when they would lock them in the stocks in the dungeon and they would strap a, a dead body, a corpse to them. And the condition when you go nuts because you've got a rotting corpse on you day after day after day after day, month after month after month as you're in this dank dark cell, the condition when you finally lose your mind because of that, they said, oh, he's finally wretched. It means uh, to be a, a, a pathetic one. That's why Paul said, he goes, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Paul used that word to describe a Christian who lives life in their own strength, one who's still chained to the corpse of their old life. And so he said, who's going to rescue me from this thing? If I've got to carry around this guy with me the rest of my days, doesn't matter that I'm saved, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to lose my mind. And that's who they were on their own as believers who were trying to do it on their own. It is possible that many at the church of Laodicea were just religious and not really ever saved, but the way Jesus describes them here, it's much more likely. The problem was they'd never grown past the baby stage of Christianity because they had rejected their absolute need for Christ after salvation, not for salvation, but after salvation, for sanctification, This is the same thing that happened to the Christians in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Paul, he, uh, well, I think it was Paul, whoever wrote it, says, listen, by the time right now, you should be teachers, instructors, you should be discipling other Christians. You have need that I establish the basics of Christianity still. And he explains why. Because you've grown dull because you haven't used the word of God that's been available to you. You haven't received it. You're not in it. You're not applying it to your life. Because those who are able to, use, to eat strong meat, it's because they've learned, their bodies have learned to take in the other stuff, the milk and all that stuff, so that they've become strong. They're, they've had their senses exercised, he said, through Use. So, these Christians, it's not that they hadn't been taught the truths of our need for Christ for sanctification, for walking with Him every day. They hadn't applied it, they weren't in the Word. Instead of moving forward, therefore, they became dull to the Scriptures through not applying it on a regular basis. And anytime you and I do that, it results in spiritual pride and a misplaced assurance. So, I ask you this morning. You know, are you regularly applying God's word to your life? I mean, if you're coming here on Sunday and that's all you get, I'm I'm just being frank with you. You know, however good I might be or not be, it's just not enough. And I am not your savior. You know, I'm not your savior. There's no man or woman out there that's your savior. There's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. And he has everything you need every single day. And you need him every single day because you're wretched (laughs) without him. (laughs) Just like I am. So are you regularly applying God's word to your life? Are you letting it penetrate your heart? Or have you assured yourself that all is well spiritually because of how good things are going? Let me explain to you something at least I've learned in my life. The most dangerous times for my Christianity is not when I'm desperate. The most dangerous times for my Christianity is when things are going good. Because for whatever reason, it's so easy to forget how much I need him every day. And that's what happened in Laodicea. Things were good, they were wealthy, they were successful. And and they forgot they were wretched. Now, if you're not where you're supposed to be in that area like they weren't, well, then Jesus gives a solution. Get back to his word. Verse 18. I counsel you. Th- that is an interesting phrase because it's in the present tense, which means, and it means to advise, which means I want to advise you on a continual basis. It's not just I counsel you right now, I want to advise you on a continual basis. And what's his advice? He says, every day on a regular basis, you need to buy three things from me. <laughs> Three things for me, things you cannot get anywhere else that you need to come to me for. First off, he says, gold tried in the fire so that you may be rich. In other words, you're not rich. You think you are, but that you may really be rich. be saying, well, buy something from Jesus. I thought salvation is free. Well, it is. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 55 in our scripture reading. In Isaiah 55, verses one through three, I won't read the whole thing. But he says, "'Ho, everyone that thirsts, "'come you to the waters, "'and he that has no money, "'come you, buy and eat, "'come and buy wine and milk "'without money and without price. "'For why do you spend money "'for that which is not bread, "'and your labor for that which does not satisfy? "'And hearken diligently unto me, "'and do what?' eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. That sounds good. Like, that sounds like a good meal. So what does that mean? Verse three, incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And of course, later on, he talks about my word doesn't return void, right? He says, I want to advise you on a regular basis. I want to teach you my word. So is salvation free? Yes, but it isn't dropped off at your door like Uber, you know? You know, it's not just something. He says, there it is. You know, go and get it whenever you want it, you know? I can't tell you. I mean, this whole COVID thing's made everything weird, you know? And, and you know, so, you know, I, I, I come home sometimes. There's groceries right there, you know? I would have been horrified at that idea in the past, you know? Someone might have touched them, you know? So, you know, who would Someone might have stolen them, you know? Now it's just, hey, we just drop all sorts of stuff at the front door these days. It isn't dropped off at your door like a grocery delivery. You have to ask. It's free, but you've got to ask. It's better than Uber, it's free. And you know what? Going to ask because you have a need? It's a lot easier to punch something in the computer and put in your credit card number. But going to ask because you have a need? That requires humility. It requires a recognition of dependency. It requires what Philadelphia had a little strength. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are to the poor in spirit. Right? That's where the kingdom starts. That's where the kingdom principles start. Humility, a recognition of dependency. And what will Jesus give us if we ask? Gold tried, refined in the fire. Refining is the process of removing impurities. He will take our deficiency and begin to change us. And he will put his sufficiency in its place. Amen? That's what he'll do. You know, it's interesting. The only church that Jesus said was actually rich was the one that had lost everything, Smyrna. That's the only one of them that he said was rich. Why were they rich? Because despite losing everything, they had Jesus. Now, It is very popular today for pastors and Christians to go, well, that's trite. That's simplistic, Pastor Will. It's more complicated than that. No, it's not trite. It's not simplistic. It's truth. It's truth. I don't have anything to offer you. You don't have anything to offer me. Nobody out there has anything to offer me, but Jesus does. And it's the only thing that's going to be something I can stand upon when everybody else lets me down, when everybody else fails. It's the only thing in this crazy world right now that is firm and solid. It's truth. And if you want to go find something else, then fine, be disappointed some more. Because any man that gets up here and tells you that it's more complicated than that, it's more complex than that, and you need something else, fine, go for it and be disappointed again. He has never let me down. I have watched everything you can imagine come through the church over 25 years of pastoring over 30 plus years of being a Christian, and I've watched the church go nuts over it every single time, and every single time, Jesus remains. Every single time, the gates of hell, fancy this, don't prevail against the church. Guys, (laughs) it is high time that we just start believing what we say we believe. You know, they were rich. They were dying. They were being killed, and they were rich, Jesus says, because they had him. And if I have a strong relationship with Jesus, and I'm content with that, I have way more than anyone else. You have way more than anyone else. You are rich, wealthy, if you have that. Church in Laodicea had been a consumer experience, not a worship service. And so Jesus promises that seeking His advice, coming to His Word on a regular basis, it will change that. He says also, "Buy for me white raiment that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear." The white raiment, according to Revelation nineteen eight, is the righteous deeds, the good works of the saints. Listen. I know you probably know this already, but Christians are not intrinsically better than other people. Like like I don't walk out my door and, and I'm just better than all the unbelievers around me. That is not the case. The difference is we just have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That means until we reach heaven, we are still capable of what anybody else is on our own. And so when I don't recognize my desperate need for the Lord, I'm asking to fall on my face. The church of Laodicea might have been full. I mean, people might have been attending it, tons of them. But they were not seeing changed lives. Unbelievers were attracted to the church for the wrong reasons, and they were often repelled from coming to Christ because they saw nothing different in these believers. There was no good deeds. There was no righteous works. No change. Jesus promises to change that if they'll seek his advice regularly. He'll give that to them. And then lastly, he says, buy for me this ointment to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. it was famous for its eye salve, its medical eye ointment, but it's not like it just grew on trees. You could just go out and grab one. You had to recognize your need for it and then purchase it. And you know, that is what you are doing, and that's what I'm doing every time you and I open our Bibles with the goal of applying it, what we learn. Every time you do that, that's what you're doing. You're saying, you're saying, "Lord, I, Jesus, I'm blind. <laughs> I am blind. But by doing what you teach me today, I know you'll help me to see. I know you'll help me to see. Now, it's a heavy rebuke. I get it. It's a heavy rebuke. But it's not a hopeless rebuke. There's a clear solution presented, and what I love about here as we get towards the end, is Jesus exp- explains that He wants them to take that solution. He doesn't want them to, he's not just, I want to throw you up. He says, no, I want you to take the solution. Look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. As many as I love. The word I there is emphatic in the Greek. He says, you've made church about you. He goes, but it's about me. And specifically, it's about my love for you. I love you guys. And those I love, guess what? I rebuke and I chasten. Now, before we get into the rebuke and chasten aspect, the word their love, it's not agape. That's normally what we find when Jesus talks about his love for us. It's not agape. It's phileo. It, it means I like you. You know, you ever heard people say that? You know, Jesus told me I gotta love you, didn't say I had to like you. He did say you have to like him too. But this phrase for phileo, it refers to like a family love, like a you know you just you know they might drive you nuts, but you still love them, you know. You like them, you like being with them, you know. Yeah, maybe you don't, but but I do. So uh, you know, just go with me. You know, the idea here is it means to have an affection for. Jesus liked them. He was on their side, even though they'd gotten things so wrong. You know, his stomach was turning, churning. It was making him sick when he looked at how they were doing it. But but he didn't want to just pull away and I got to get better. I got got, you know, you're toxic, man. No, he's like, I want to be close. I love you. I still like you. Do you know that Jesus still likes you even when you've gotten off track? He says. As many as I have that affection for, I rebuke. The word rebuke, it simply means this, to state that someone has done wrong. For whatever reason, we usually associate rebuke with the word mean, you know, he rebuked me, you know. But it just means to tell someone what they've done is wrong. Jesus says, as many as I have affection for, I tell you when you're doing something wrong. And I chasten you. The word there means to discipline for the purpose of correcting behavior. I want you to change what you're doing. I chasten you. You know, there's an untranslated word here that makes this phrase a conditional clause, and it's the conditional clause of greater probability. In other words, because you're so deeply liked by Jesus, as a Christian, it is very highly likely that Jesus will be telling you at some point, you're wrong. Get used to it. Get used to it. I mean, it's a very high probability that he's going to have to tell you at some point, bro, you're wrong, you know? You're off, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I love you. And fix it. That's a part of being a Christian, okay? And, and so realize he's probably going to sometimes send messengers into your life to say, bro, you're wrong. Don't get mad at that. You know, don't get mad at that. He says, instead, be zealous, therefore, and repent. Be zealous is very different than lukewarm. Lukewarm means tepid. Zealous here means to be deeply committed to something. You know, instead of being tepid right now, be deeply committed to me. And repent. Stop thinking you're fine. Embrace my correction and turn around. And because Jesus loves them so much, he has such affection for them, he explains, I'm not okay with a long-distance relationship. I'm not okay with having my stomach turn when I'm around you. I want you to repent and be close to me. And so he reminds them that he's not the one who's far away. Look at verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door knock. Literally, I have taken my stand at the door and I'm not going anywhere. And I knock. Knock is probably not the right word. It means to rap, And, and it, it's in the present tense, which means I continually rap. Now, there are a lot of ways that you can knock on the door. For example, when the Uber driver comes to the door, it is a very distinct knock. It's, it's quick and it's hard and loud and then they're out of there, right? Because like they don't want to see you and you don't want to see them. It's like this understood contract, right? You know, you're not a friend, you're here to deliver food, get out. And they know that, and so they knock real quick. They don't want you to, they, you know, they quick, so they don't, you, they're not there when you answer the door, quick, you know, so that they can get out, you know? It's, it's not like the, the, you know, the, you know, knock, 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 you know? That, that means someone's trying to sell you something. That means do not answer the door. The polite knock is do not answer the door. Um, Jesus, he's like the neighbor who you know and love. They're just... Like, I know you're in there and you need to come out, you know? He just keeps rapping, keeps rapping on the door, you know? He's not worried about offending you because you have a relationship, right? You know? It's like me. I go to the house, you know, I knock a few times. If nobody comes, I go in. You know, my family, I should have prefaced that. Not you. My, if I'm, it's my family, you know? Yeah, sorry. That, wow. Anyway, you know? After I got married, the first few times I went to my parents' house, I just walked in because that's what I was used to doing. Then I realized, you know, I should probably knock. It's not my house anymore, you know. He says, if, behold, I stand at the door, and I'm, I'm rapping. I want, I want in. I want to be with you. I'm not mad. You don't need to worry. Just if any man hear my voice, which means to believe and respond to my voice, you trust me and you respond to it. And if you do that and you open the door, then I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. That's interesting, because that's just like the promise he gave to Philadelphia. I am my beloved's and he is mine, right? The same thing. Now, Jesus, when he raps on the door, there's only other one place that we see the Lord talk about like knocking on a door when he's the person that's pictured and it's the Song of Solomon 5.2 and it's the groom who's outside and the bride says, you know, I'm in bed, I'm, a, I'm all relaxed, whatever and all of a sudden, knock, knock, knock. Hey, it's me, love. It's me, I wanna come in, I wanna be close to you. That's how Jesus knocks on our door. It's why he knocks on our door. He isn't the problem. He wants closeness with us. He wants intimacy. The only question is whether we will let him in. And when we do, he comes and dines with us even though we've been the one that has been turning his stomach. This rebuke is one of the best illustrations of hating the sin but loving the sinner. And Jesus may start by telling them their spiritual condition turns his stomach, but he ends with a promise of beautiful friendship. You know, I don't usually think of vomit when I'm having a nice meal with someone. It's the exact opposite of that, isn't it? You're enjoying company, enjoying the meal. It's the exact opposite. Isn't God's love for us awesome? You know, we may be doing things that turn his stomach, but this is what he wants. This is what he's desiring with us. He never, ever stops loving us. He never, ever stops desiring closeness with us. And it's never because we deserve it. He will always confront our evil, never rejoicing in it and never leaving us in it. But he always wants to be close to us. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Will, it's time to be over and you still have two verses left. You're correct and I have no clue how I'm gonna pull this off next week but we'll do verses 21 and 22 next Sunday. But I wanna leave you with this thought. Laodicea was not doing anything commendable when when this message was sent. But the image that Jesus leaves them with isn't of them being the vomit on the floor being lapped up by the dogs. He leaves them with the image of enjoying a meal together. That is your future. Even if you've been doing things that turn the Lord's stomach, that's your future if you'll just hear His voice and open the door. Let's all stand. Now by these three things you said, Lord, faith, hope, and love. Oh, we always have hope. Paul the Apostle, he said, you know, if, if the only reason we can have hope is how things are going in this world, then we, we have all people are the most miserable in the world. So we always have reason to hope. Even if we look at our own lives, we think, Lord, I, I just don't know if I'll ever get it right. Jesus, I'm so glad when we're in that place that you come to us and say, well, that's why I died for you. Because you wouldn't get it right. But if you'll hear my voice, open the door. I want to dine with you. I love you no matter what you've done. No matter how much the things you've done has turned my stomach. I don't want to spew you out. I want to dine with you. I want to be close with you. Lord, thank you for such amazing love that you never disappoint. It never fails, truly. It does indeed endure forever. So Lord, right now we commit to you to say, come in, Jesus. Come in, dine with us. We don't wanna do things our own way anymore. We don't wanna keep you at a distance. We don't wanna be, Lord, a lacking of, uh, be lukewarm to not be refreshing and not be healing to those around us. We want to be like you, hating the sin, loving the sinner, speaking the truth in love, being full of grace and full of truth. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us and frustrate your spirit, that you would take of you and give it to us, that you'd live through us, Lord, that we might be that city set on a hill shining for you in such a way that men glorify your Father as a result. We want the good deeds, Lord. We want that wealth, We want to be able to really see as we recommit to you to be in your word and apply it to our lives on a regular basis. Continue to teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.